This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. You know, you never walk down the aisle expecting to have to divide 50% of your assets and you don't have babies and in the hospital look at them and say, I can't wait to spend even numbered Christmases with you. It's just not something you ever foresee when you are getting married and having children together. This week on Grace Enough, I sit down with Brandy Wilson. We discuss picking up the pieces of your shattered life after divorce. A pastor's wife for 20 years, a mother to three sons. One day she woke up and life as she'd known it was over. Brandy talks about unexpected moments of grief, shifting her mindset from healed to healing. The importance of speaking to the father of her children versus her ex-husband and how God has provided along the way. As you're listening and people come to mind, I'd like to encourage you to press pause and send them this episode. I believe it will be balm to some weary souls. Brandy Wilson, thank you for being on the Grace Enough podcast today. I'm super excited to be with you. Thanks for having me, Amber. Yeah, I am looking forward to this conversation as it is one that I honestly have not had on my show yet. And one of the reasons when I received your book that I knew it was time is because um, I have a dear friend who has walked a path similar to yours. And it just made me think, you know, how many resources are out there talking to this freely. And so with that said, first share with me how you came to know Jesus, just in a general sense, like what does that early faith journey look like for you? I was born in a small town in Kentucky and actually um, was in church my entire life. I did, it was a Baptist church. So I did mission friends and GAs and actings and all of those great uh, (laughs) programs as well as Sunday school. And um, after I also part of my traditional Baptist upbringing was that there were um, revivals every, usually every fall and every spring. Um, and I remember after a revival where you, where you were at church Monday through Friday, typically every evening, um, I remember asking my mom some questions and she called our pastor, brother, Bill, brother, Bill and miss Pat. I'm still friends with miss Pat on Facebook and brother Bill <laughs> came over and, um, actually, we had the conversation and did the Romans road and I accepted Christ at a really young age. I think I was around eight or nine. Um, I remember getting baptized. My faith journey probably became more mine when I graduated high school and moved into college um, because I didn't have my parents there helping necessarily guide that or get me up every Sunday to be at church. Um, And that's probably the point where I felt like God became very real to me uh, is college, you know, having conversations with him and intimacy of friendship, all of that kind of stuff definitely developed. I did a study in college called experiencing God changed Uh, my life, girl, right? Right. My life. (laughs) I I should probably buy um, a version and walk through that once every, you know, five years or something. 
content is just so rich and meaningful. Well, and they've just updated it within like the last three years. And so a group at our church just went through it. And and my son, my oldest son is going through the teen version right now. And just last week he said, you know, mom, what I really like about it is like these questions that I've tried to figure out about like the relationship part. Yeah. Kind of helping answer those. And I was like, yes, I remember that from my twenties. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. I did not realize they'd updated it. I know in that. Uh, yeah. Anyways, that's so cool. I, I wonder sometimes <laughs> just how many lives it's impacted. Um, and right. I did not mean to interrupt, but I am, no. I want to make sure that we dive into your story because the reality is six years ago, your the life as you knew it, which was a pastor's wife, um, someone very much in ministry of a church that was growing completely changed. And so Share as much of that story as you feel comfortable sharing, because I want to lay this foundation of why you wrote the book Better Than Okay. So you're correct. In 2016, um, my husband of 20 years, we had actually planted a church in 2002 here in Nashville called Cross Point Church. And in 2016, he very suddenly walked away from the ministry and the marriage and family unit that we had built in the church and um, life as I knew it kind of ended overnight. And it would be, um, I, I must say that when your life does publicly fall apart, it has been falling apart behind the scenes for a really long time. Yeah. However, I did not foresee the extent to which things were going to fall apart in my life. So as I said, life as I knew it ended overnight. I found myself, um, in 2017, divorce, starting over, single mom to three. Um, at the time, my boys were small. They were like 10, 12, and 14 or 15. And we had to start all over. The one thing that remained consistent for my kids is I kept them in the same school system, but sold my house, moved to a new neighborhood, just totally started from scratch. And um, probably the most important lesson I learned during that time is that the best part about your life falling apart is that you get to put the pieces of your life back together again, the way you want them. And, and that's where I kind of felt my, found myself. I could either, you know, I was feeling all of those emotions that yeah. anyone walking through that journey feels. I was feeling devastation and disappointment and heartbreak and fear and lots of anxiety and all of those emotions. It ran the gamut being overwhelmed, but I could either, allow those emotions to tank me, or I could start to rebuild by putting the pieces of life back together. And that's what I chose to do. Um, And as I did that, because of my history in the church and being attached Mm -hmm. to, you know, a successful church, I had a a little bit of recognition locally, um, and maybe in social media. So I started talking to a lot of women walking similar paths. Mm -hmm. And one of the first questions they would ask is, am I going to be okay? Followed by, will my kids be okay? And my response to them was like, you're going to be better than okay. It does Mm -hmm. not feel like it in the moment, but if you lean into the source and allow him to guide you, you are going to be able to live a life that's better than okay. Yeah. Well, and is it fair to say that one day you're putting your life back together and the next day you're like falling apart again? Oh my gosh. Well, let's, you know, I'm going to be honest. It took me six years to even, you know, it's just, a contract it's just so much. It. Yeah. I think, um, it is a lot of healing that has to happen. It's 
it's just devastating. The unraveling of your family unit mm. is devastating. I had my husband at the time and I had dated for three years. We were married for 20 years. We had met when we were 18. We had grown up together. So right. literally, I felt like I had lost part of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. And then the death of the dreams for our family. Oh, wow. that's just devastating. Um, you know, you never walk down the aisle expecting to have to divide 50% of your assets and you don't have babies and in the hospital, look at them and say, I can't wait to spend even numbered Christmases with you. Mm. It's just not something you ever foresee when you are getting married and having children together. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think that's the thing I could die. I could go a lot of different directions there, but what I want to focus on are some of those early struggles that you had that maybe someone like me just can't like I just love the way that you were so honest in your book yet you also focus so much on what you did to move forward but what were some of those like early struggles that you almost can't anticipate until you're walking through them yes yes so one of them that I feel like everyone who has walked through divorce probably encounters at some point, I had a doctor's appointment. When I moved, I didn't move super far. Like I said, I stayed in the same school system, but did kind of shift where I had been doing life. So I decided to, you know, find new doctors, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting in a doctor's appointment, filling out all, you know, 15 pages of paperwork that come the first time you visit. visit. And um, I'm just filling it all out. And I've written in my new address and, you know, things are great. And I get to that point where it says in case of emergency. And it was the first time I realized, like, I don't have an in case of emergency person. The person who's been my in case of emergency person for 20 years is not, I can't list them anymore. They've chosen to leave me. My kids weren't old enough to be able to take that role on. And I just remember sitting there and my eyes fill with tears. And I was having a good day. I was having a yeah. great day, Amber. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden that grief snuck in, in a way that I did not expect. And, um, I remember sitting in that waiting room, just trying to pull myself together and not have a total come apart. And the nurse, you know, calls my name and I get up to go back and I'm like, I, I haven't filled out my paperwork. I'm not. And I'm fumbling. She's like, it's fine. And, and she was super gracious. She had no clue what was going on inside of my right. heart. Yeah. It's those moments that are actually, um, it's, it's almost like you anticipate the larger moments, like having to do a Christmas without your kids, mm-hmm. um, because you know that that's coming. It's when grief sneaks in, um, in that crafty little way that you do not expect that, man, it just takes your breath away and you have to recover from it. Well, and those are two things that you talk about. And, and one of them, I'm going to share a quote about what you say about grief that I love. But another thing is just making that new memory again, yeah. you know, and I mean, If anybody, and I know a lot of my listeners hear me talk about this, but I mean, brain science talks so much about that. I mean, we have these common neural pathways and it takes a lot of slow time to make new pathways. And so anything like that, that unexpected grief, it's just like, oh, yes, yes, (laughs) it's going to come whether you want it to or not. Right, right. Right. You cannot prevent it. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. You got to do something new, but it, that that can be hard too. I am totally with you on the brain science of that because, you know, to learn that our brains are malleable and that changes can be made, that's, that's right. a game changer. That's huge to know that, you know, when, when we're told in the Bible to take our thoughts captive, yes. that is 
that is biblical and science supports that. And that's, that's right. just uh, such a cool concept to me. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. I know that's what I say now all the time. I'm like, brain science is just catching up with God science. That's all yes, this is. Exactly. This is proving yes. what all of us already we know. That's right. We know it. Now we just know the details. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you write, as I began processing my trauma, I believed that I had to move on from grief completely, when in actuality, my grief was something I would choose to move forward with. Grief allows us to navigate life in healthier ways, to see beauty from ashes, and to recognize the sacred and simplicity. Tell me how choosing to move forward with grief impacted you versus trying so hard to get rid of it. Trying to get rid of it just became, you know, a battle that I was not able to win. Yeah. And I couldn't quite figure out why I was very, I had, and still have such a wonderful support system around me. And one of the gifts I will say my friends gave me, because I think it's so important. One of the things I tried to do in the book is to be able to tell people like you, who are, who is a support person to a friend who's walking through a similar situation, just very practical ways that they can love on their friend who's walking through something similar. So one of the biggest gifts my friends gave me is they gave me the time I needed to grieve. And I think mm -hmm. often when we're watching a person we love grieve, because we love them with the kindest of intentions, we try to move them from their grief and we try to hurry them out of the grieving process. And my friends, my support system, they were so kind to give mm. me the time I needed to grieve. So I think what I ended up understanding about grief is let's say um, grief is represented by a ball is that let's say it's the size of a softball and grief is the size of a softball. And I think the longer time goes on, that grief is going to shrink. It's going to go baseball size. It's going to go ping pong ball size. And then it's finally going to be marble size. And what I've actually learned is that the grief honestly stays there. It is us that grows around the grief. So the grief doesn't shrink. But we, in dealing with our grief in a healthy way and taking the steps we can on our own healing journey, we are the ones who grow around the grief. Mm, that is powerful. I mean, really powerful because we can, we can spend so much energy and get so angry with ourselves, wanting to rid ourselves of an emotion 
Yes. That really can become incredibly unhealthy and stunt you on your, you know, your path forward anyways. Yes, exactly. Ah, wow. So tell me this, because I know that when you're a Christian and you've grown up in Christian culture, we have these certain uh, expectations of ourselves and of other people. And sometimes I say, because I wasn't someone that was raised in the church, like going every time the doors was open, that now I realize the gift of that is I don't have some of the baggage that some of my friends carry. Right. Now my kids are going to have all the baggage (laughs) (laughs) because no matter how hard you try, right? Like, I mean, no matter what you grow up in, we have baggage. Like we all have it. So exactly. (laughs) Just depends on who we decide to blame it on. (laughs) But with that said, I mean, with divorce comes a lot of what feels like layers of guilt and shame that are hard to work through. Plus you're losing your community, not everyone, but in your case, you lost your whole community. Flesh that out for us a bit. Um, Just what was your experience? Your experience, I think, was different than a lot of people's, uh, meaning that you had some support people in Mm -hmm. your church who loved you and supported you. But I think that's similar too. I think there's, you know, a couple of different um, people in every setting that where you feel supported or you feel rejected. Right. But even if everyone is supported, there are still some things inside of our own head that fight the guilt and shame that come along with the death of a relationship. You know, I think that goes back to us talking about the the grief and and the things that we can do as part of our own healing journey. I think I think one of the things I learned about, you know, dealing with the guilt and shame is that I'm always conscious to say healing and not healed because I, mm. I just think it's one of those things that people think I'm going to reach the finish line. And what I have learned is that you never reach the finish line and not that things are as terrible as they were in the midst of my divorce, but there's just always room for growth. Mm. Um, I have a girlfriend and we laugh. She's, she has done a lot of emotional work. Like I have therapeutic work and we will say like, man, life was so much easier before we became self-aware. <laughs> So, and it's true, Amber, uh, because the more you uncover, the more you're like, oh, I need to dig in and figure that out. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, battling that guilt and shame, one of the things that I had to realize is that I was hearing a voice in my head and it was not the voice of God. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the voice of my ex-husband. So all mm. of the negative things that I had heard over 20 years that you know, because I didn't know anything else. I just thought maybe this is how relationships work. Um, Those are the things that I would hear about myself. When I was starting my coaching business, I would hear all these negative voices. And I actually was having a coaching session where I was being coached. I told him one of my biggest struggles was the voice that I heard in my head and that I was tired of feeling like the divorced pastor's wife and that I wasn't a great time manager and that, you know, I, yeah, all the negative things. I have a list of them in the book. Um, But (laughs) he said, so whose voice is that in your head? And and I realized at that point that I was allowing my ex-husband's voice to still influence. I've been divorced for, you know, four or five years at this point. And I was allowing that voice from the past to still influence me. And at that point I began asking myself all the time when something negative bounced through my head, whose voice is that? 
and then reminding myself, let it be God's and just diving in. What does God say about me? Who do I know that I am? Who has God shown me that I am through tough times? Um, and I do that a ton with my clients is when I'm working with them and they are talking about, and it, the answers always are shocking to me because sometimes that voice, that negative voice we hear in our head is a teacher we had in elementary school who said we weren't smart enough, or it could be a coach in middle school who said, you know, you're going to never amount to anything. And we hear those voices from our past. And for me, I became super intentional. I have a post-it note hanging right here, about six feet from me on my um, mirror in my bathroom that says, whose voice do I hear in my head? Mm -hmm. Let it be God's. And I have to be super intentional to break that pattern um, that I have been used to and make sure that the voice that I'm hearing in my head is the voice of God, because God is the one who can remove the guilt and the shame that comes with the hardships that we walk through in our lives. Yeah. And I mean, that identifying God's voice is so important because like you said, it could be your, your spouse or Maybe it is people inside the church that you've heard things. And I think the temptation is to wad it all up and throw it in the trash. Whereas with the church, it's complicated because it's tons and tons of people. And you're like, I think throwing the whole thing in the trash is not the best decision. You just have to sort out in your mind. Yes. What is God's actual voice? Yes, for sure. And it's a long game. It is a long game. It is a marathon and not a sprint. All right. Well, divorce um, also brought some new challenges um, and heartache as a parent. And something that I love that you talk about is you really thought through, what do I want our house to become? Yes. And you share just some beautiful things about having friends over for your boys and certain practices is what I like to call it or habits or rituals, whatever you want to call it. um, They would kind of lay that foundation, right? That would build in their mind, healthy habits, positive things. Talk about that a little bit, the heartache of trying to co-parent, the impact divorce has on your children, all of that. Gosh, we could talk for hours about this question. Like legitimately, there's so many directions I could go. Um, one of the things that I have mentioned earlier in this interview is that I did choose to sell the house that we had lived in. We'd been there 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, so it was really the only home that my boys had known. And I chose to sell that house for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't want that you know, financial piece hanging over my head. It was always bigger than what I wanted. So I chose to sell that house. And at the time that was, it was bittersweet for all of us, but right. I just felt strongly we needed a fresh start. So um, I just didn't want the ghost of, of that family unit that my kids had been used to, to be hanging there, you know, on the regular days, like coming home from school and doing homework and dinner together. And then on those special days, like holidays and birthdays. So I wanted a fresh start. I sold that house through, gosh, a really great story that only God can deliver. I ended up getting a really beautiful, sweet house. That's as old as I am. So we have wrinkles and creaks and all of those kind of things. I have one of those houses too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I knew in this house, I wanted to, actually, you know, I'm putting the pieces back together the way I want to. So I could ask myself, what do I want this new house to feel like? And what do I need our family unit? How do I need us to function? And um, it's actually 
how I started to dream again. I think I had spent so many years being the support person that that's part of the reason I felt so lost is it's like, I've always, I'm a two on the Enneagram. So I'm like a great cheerleader and support person. And, um, and it's like, Oh, now I'm that person that has to, I have to cheer myself on. So I just started even before I purchased this house, making, I opened my phone and I went to the notes app and I started making a note of what I wanted this house to look like, what I wanted it to feel like. And it was very simple stuff. Um, like I knew I wanted really, you know, bright walls in most of the house. I knew I wanted a lot of live plants. I knew I wanted to not just buy the candles. I wanted to burn them. Um, because so often we buy stuff like that for when people come over and man, I want to burn the candle for myself. Um, so yeah, I ended up making that list. So when I bought this house, I, you know, I honestly did a total facelift of everything physically, um, just because it was old and needed some love. But then I also started to think about what did I want this home to represent and what did I want this home to feel like? And I knew that in putting my life back together, I was also putting our family's life back together. So how can I redefine family and feel like nothing is missing? Um, kind of became what I, my goal was. So I started thinking, what do I want my home to feel like? And one of the things that was super important to me is I wanted our home to have a lot of laughter. Yeah. I wanted it to be where my kids' friends wanted to be. I wanted it to be comfortable. I wanted this home to feel safe. I never wanted anyone to feel like they couldn't show up as who they were and what they were feeling. Mm. So I, I knew that those two things were important to me. I also knew that because of our story and going through so much deceit and manipulation and the ugly that we had walked mm-hmm. through, that I wanted this to be a house of truth. And that is probably the thing that I drilled the hardest. The other two kind of just naturally happened as far as laughter yeah. and feeling safe. But the house of truth is the one that I probably had to teach the most or mm-hmm. lead the most. I would just super early on say, Hey, we always tell the truth. I, yep. I don't care if it's about how many popsicles you've already had today, yep. but we always tell the truth because if we tell the truth, then we can deal with it. I cannot right. deal with trust lies. is not broken. Yep. And, and I would say like, we've all gone through a lot of lies mm-hmm. and we don't live that life anymore. And, you know, you know, you've set a culture of a household when it is, it is spoken back to you. Uh, and just this week, Amber, <laughs> which was, teens do very well. So we were having a funny conversation the other night. And sometimes teens also tell you, you know, more than mom wants to know there are times I'm like, but I'm your mother. And we had one of that's those a moms. good thing though. That's a good thing. No, I agree with you, but you know, it is it's hard that- to hear it, but if they're telling you, they trust you. Yes. And you know, they say, don't show your facial expression, like keep your facial expression neutral. And I'm like, I, that's impossible for me. <laughs> that's not in my character. <laughs> yeah. They said something like legitimately two nights ago. And I was like, there are certain things that I kind of wish I didn't know. And they said, mm, this is a house of truth. Yeah. I was like, okay, you've embraced it. So that's a good thing. That's how we know that it's not just, you know, a goal. It's become culture. Yes. Which is, I mean, which is so important, right? Like, because we all have a culture, no matter who you are, you have a culture that you're facilitating in your family, in your work environment, wherever you're at. So tell me this for someone who may be listening, who they're in their house. Yeah. And that's where they need to stay for now. Um, 
any encouragement for them, like what that looks like? I think sometimes it's still, and you know this, it's still so hard. And we talked about it a little bit already. Like I'm in the beginning phases and I don't even know how to take the next step. Yeah. I think it's so funny when I told my journey, like I'm selling my house, she was like, good. I feel, I wish most of my clients would do that. And honestly, lots of times it happens, either it's financially the best fit or trying to keep the consistency with the kids. Um, and I had told my kids, we're going to stay in the same school system. So it's always done with really great intentions. Um, so I think if you're choosing to stay in your new home, you have to be super intentional to create new memories Mm -hmm. in there for me, even whether it was was the old, because we lived in that house a little while post-divorce. Um, but I became super intentional about replacing photos so that it represented our new family unit and not our old family unit. I think for the wife, she needs to redo that master bedroom. And if that Mm. means she is, you know, repainting walls and getting new furniture on Facebook marketplace, well, then let's do it. Um, But I think to be able to create a little space in the home for her that feels comfortable and safe and doesn't have a bunch of memories attached to it. So she's not going to sleep at night, looking at the same room she did married and waking up in the morning, looking at that same room, but to be able to give herself a new space that is hers is super Mm. important. Um, And I think talk about what is going on with Mm. your kids. I, even in, you know, selling the house and buying a new house, I knew financially I was not, my goal was not to have a big house. And my goal was not um, to basically put us in something that was similar. I wanted totally new to us. So I said to my kids, because I, you know, financially couldn't afford the same level of house. I just said, I think I'm going to be able to either get a three bedroom with a bonus room or a four bedroom. Let's talk about what you guys would want the most. So bring those kids into the conversation when it comes to what do you want to change about our house? What do you like about our house that we can celebrate and enjoy? And what would you like to change and continue to have those open conversations? And I will tell you with moms of boys, it's not always easy because they don't want to talk. Um, And especially when they're hurting, you know, they'll talk about football all day long, but to say like, Hey, our home is going to feel really different. What's one thing I can do um, Mm -hmm. for you to help it continue to feel like a safe and loving place for you. Um, and they might not have an answer immediately. So go back and revisit that, but just be Mm -hmm. able to have that open conversation so that they feel safe to tell you and boys are protective of their mom. So sometimes Mm -hmm. they just don't want to bring up stuff because it could maybe cause tears, right? It could cause mom to cry. And we've seen mom, you know, upset enough. Um, so yeah, Mm -hmm. just to have those conversations where they feel safe with your emotions and also feel safe expressing what they need. I, yeah, I appreciate that you say that because I've heard this, not just, um, when people are walking through divorce, but loss of other things, there's this fear of how much can I say that's not going to hurt them or I'm not going to cause them to spiral out of control. Does changing all the photos mean that then they're going to think that their, you know, other parent is important. And so did you face any of those thoughts or have you had people ask you those questions when you have coached some people walking through divorce? Yeah, I think every scenario is different. So you mm-hmm. know what your kids need and you know what you're capable of handling. So I think 
if they need those photos, those photos can go in their room. I didn't do anything about the photos that they had in their room. Yeah, yeah. Of the, you know, major family places, um, family room, kitchen, hallway, right, type of things. So, yeah, I think as a parent, you know what your child needs the most. Sometimes divorces end, you know, smoothly and co-parenting is easy and you might not feel the need to have to replace things. And that is awesome. But for me and where I was, so much hurt had happened. That was what was best for me. Um, I think one of the things I would tell you if your co-parenting situation is strained is to become super intentional of, are you responding to your ex-husband or are you responding to your kid's father? And for me, I try to always, when it comes to anything with the kids, make sure I am responding to my children's father rather than my ex-husband. That just kind of, it is very practical and it is very simple, but it kind of separates those emotions. Mm -hmm. This is my kid's father. So let me deal with him in that space. Um, Mm -hmm. Rather than dealing from your hurt from the betrayal or, you know, infidelity, whatever the case is um, of your ex-husband, lean in and make sure you're responding to your kid's dad. To me, that's got to be the hardest part, right? Because I fight that urge um, in all situations. When someone has wronged me, like I just want to talk poorly about them in front of yeah. everyone. Yes. And yeah. you've and in some situations, you feel very justified in that, right? And so right. I can only imagine the self restraint. <laughs> yes. yes. But it is vital because you love your children. Yeah. And the best thing for your children is for them to have two healthy parents. Yes. And I think at the end of the day, you know, in writing better than okay, I tried to be super intentional that this book is not about what happened. This book is about what God chose to do in me when I chose to begin again. Um, I had no desire. I think a lot of people were like, aren't you going to write a tell all? And the people closest to me who know all of the details are like, this could be a lifetime movie. And I'm like, I don't want that. I wanted to write a story about what God chose to do in me when I chose to begin again with him. Uh, And that's where I think, you know, if we want to be the healthiest versions of ourselves, we have to be willing to deal with all of that baggage and Mm. in dealing with baggage, man, I was dealing with baggage from my marriage. I was dealing with baggage from my teen years. I was dealing with baggage from my you know, childhood years. Um, And all of that is a common thread that helps create the patterns, healthy and unhealthy, that we choose to have in relationship. So if you're wanting to be that healthy version of yourself for your kids, then the work you need to do is on yourself Mm -hmm. first. And that's going to automatically feed into your parenting. That's right. And I mean, that's really the only work that you can do. You know, we can spend so much time. (laughs) We can spend so much time trying to make sure that your kids are okay. Not that you shouldn't make sure that your kids are okay. But ultimately, like you said, when you start doing the work yourself, that does impact them. Yeah. Was there that temptation to really protect them from things? Because I hear that a lot too. And I, and see, you seem like you're like me though. I am such an open conversationalist that even my oldest son sometimes will be like, mom, la, 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 la. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. no, listen to me. You need to hear it from me because you are going to hear it from somebody else. And you're going to hear something that's not the truth. Now right. I'm not talking about obviously right, relationship stuff, but you know, he doesn't want to have, I have a 13 year old. Um, yes. Yeah. Some of the 13 year old 
conversations and I'm like, listen, <laughs> have it here. So you know, the truth. Yes, exactly. Um, but I realized like some people don't have that open dialogue. Like they struggle with that. Yes. And so it doesn't seem like that you probably struggled as much with that. Cause I feel like you're a lot like me. I mean, you're a pretty open person, but did you find yourself at times thinking like, I need to shy back from this because they can't handle it with my children? Yeah. Um, yes and no. I think probably shied back the most with my youngest, just because the youngest when things happened, um, I think my older two were super aware of what was going on. You know, I found out, gosh, probably six months after my divorce, one of my kids came to me and had, you know, ended up reading a whole bunch of messages on their dad's phone. They knew more than I did. They had more of the, you know, truth than I did Wow. Um, that wow. I think it's, I think, man, our kids are way more perceptive than we think they That's, are. Yes. They pick up on conversations that we think that we are, you know, whispering and they can't hear. I am always an advocate of give your kids age appropriate truth. Um, yes. In the book, I talk about, you know, let's picture your kid traveling with a suitcase. And if I'm traveling with a three or four year old, they're going to get one of those little mini backpacks and it's going to have like a snack, their lovey and a sippy cup in it. And as they get older, their backpack gets bigger and they get to a point where now they're with a suitcase. Um, Mm. you know, they're a teenager and they're carrying a a suitcase, the size of a carry on. And, and that's how we kind of look at truth is we always give them the truth. We just give them the age appropriate truth. Mm. So I think one of the struggles I had is when my kids would come to me battling similar situations that I had battled in my marriage was how do I say the truth without talking negatively about their father. So Mm -hmm. for instance, if one of my kids would have called and said like, Hey, I'm having a really hard time communicating with him. I have said what I want over and over. He doesn't Mm -hmm. hear me. He only wants what he wants in my response. You know, it could be a couple of things I could say. Yeah. Cause you know, he's old. I could go off and say all the negative things. Or I could affirm the truth of the situation that they are telling me and say, I'm sorry you're walking through this. I want you to know, I understand how hard it is to communicate with your dad. So let's talk about what's the next step you can take. So Mm. in doing that, I am affirming what they're feeling, what their gut is telling them rather than pushing it under the carpet. Because Amber, part of the reason things are so difficult for me to recognize is I was in a situation where I was married to someone who was really different publicly than they were privately. So therefore everyone in my life is telling me how amazing that he was, that he's so great. And he's such a wonderful teacher and he has changed our life and he has changed our marriage and da, 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 da. So I start to think, well, clearly I'm the weak link. Everyone around me is telling me how great he is. Mm-hmm. Clearly. I, I mean, the piece that I'm dealing with oh. at home and I'm the common denominator there. And I don't want my kids to have to feel that in that That's relationship. Right. So when they come to me and listen in that conversation, they're not being overly negative. They're just saying like, he's hard to communicate with. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. 
that is true. I affirm what you're feeling in this is important for them to learn to trust themselves in situations that, you know, feel familiar. And even when they go out to other relationships that they are looking for what healthy communication looks like in a relationship of their own. Yeah. Well, and that affirmation, or if it's something that someone's sharing that you're like, well, I mean, are you sure? But instead calling that what it is, um, Mm -hmm. also stops that runaway train in our brain, right? Like where you're just spinning out of control and then you can stop that runaway train. And then you asking them like, what's the next step forward can just refocus our attention back on like what the problem is. Right. Instead of just rehearsing in our mind over and over again, like this is driving me crazy, which yes, 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 it is. Yep. But it doesn't do anything to just keep screaming. It's driving me crazy. No. Well, and you saying that um, as we close up here, I will say it reminded me so much of a conversation I had with Wade Mullen and he talks about impression management, you know, that people who are someone different out on the stage than they are behind the curtain. And so if anybody's listening and you're hearing that and you're nodding your head like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Talk to Brandy, search her out, get her coaching. Look at Wade's information because he talks a lot about impression management and it's pretty fascinating. Um, But let's close with this. Someone who just really thinking about that woman who is, I mean, she's just exhausted. You know, I know for you immediately you say, ah, I know that feeling so well. You're sitting on the floor and you're thinking, I can't do this. I cannot do this. What encouragement do you have for her? The reminder that it's one day at a time Mm -hmm. that. I think part of the reason we get so overwhelmed when we're walking through tough seasons of life, whether it is divorce or, you know, a number of other scenarios is we start to jump ahead of what Mm -hmm. will life look like for me. It was, where are we going to live in four months? In four months, I have to be out of this house. Where are we going to live? Then it became, you know, how am I going to afford tuition in a few years? And how am I going to afford two with tuition? And then, What will it look like when my kids start getting married and you start playing all of these scenarios, the future in your head, and you get so overwhelmed that you're just frozen. And I think Mm. for me, I had to realize that I'm taking one day at a time and, you know, I would be very clear in the morning of what do I need to make happen today? What are the conversations I need to have phone calls? I need to make um, appointments. I need to go to what, you know, that is that one day at a time is your goal. And then, you know what you do at the end of the night, you celebrate, you made it through that one day Mm. and you're thankful and you're grateful and you know that you've done it and you can do it again. And you get up the next morning and it is all about one day at a time and you Mm. focus on that day. Gosh, that's wise counsel. Well, Brandy, thank you so much. If people um, are listening and they want to connect with you or check out the services you provide, um, I know that they can get better than okay on your website, Amazon, all the places, but what about if they want to connect with you? Yes. If they want to connect with me, my website is lovebrandywilson.com. If they want to follow me on Instagram, I'm lovebrandywilson there, Brandy with an I. Um, And then I'm on Facebook as Brandy Wilson. So I can be found all of those places. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Amber. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you were finishing this episode encouraged and maybe for the first time believing you will be better than okay. And again, if someone came to mind while listening, will you please share this episode with them? 
It will serve both as an encouragement to me and to them. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.